This is their new hoax. But, you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're all feeling the impact of coronavirus. Today, Qantas stood down 20,000 people, and, of course, they're joining a long list. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Welcome to Nursing Review's new podcast. Each episode, we'll look at a different aspect of the pandemic, tackling myths, talking research, and keeping you informed. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost... My name is Connor Burke, and this is the Nursing Review Coronavirus Podcast. A lot has been said about how we may get back to normality, how we as a society might get out of this pandemic. Many people, including some of our experts and top politicians, have said that a full return to our old way of life will only happen when a vaccine is discovered. Some experts initially said a year to 18 months was the earliest, but, you know, is that really likely? It took 28 years to find vaccines for the flu and chickenpox, and researchers don't expect to find an HIV vaccine readily available until 2030. That's 50 years after the initial outbreak. Currently, we haven't found vaccines for other coronavirus. But, you know, this is unprecedented, and there are experts around the world working on solutions, including the use of existing drugs for treatment. One of them joins me now is Professor David Patterson, the director of the University of Queensland Centre for Clinical Research. David, thanks for joining us. No, thank you very much. And uh, as you've implied in your introduction, you know, we're, we're really all on the edge of our seats, you know, wondering when are we going to get back to normal? And the bad news really is that it's certainly going to not be in 2020. I think um, in terms of finding a very effective treatment or finding a, a vaccine, uh, both of those really, I I think we're going to be waiting until 2021 or even, even beyond. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important for um, listeners to, to differentiate um, treatment and vaccines. And I guess it's probably better to sort of get rid of the the terminology cure because that's something that we don't really use in in medicine um, so much. And and I think it sort of clouds the, the issue really. So first of all, I might start by talking about, you know, the search for an effective treatment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Typically, we've said for viral infections, we don't have many effective treatments, uh, unlike bacterial infections for which we have antibiotics. And there's no doubt that there are many infections that are due to bacteria. If we give an antibiotic, we can get rid of those bacteria and a person's symptoms completely resolve and they get on with their, their life. But there's not really many antivirals that truly do completely eradicate an infection and um, without a risk of of the infection reoccurring or in the situation with with HIV for example uh, which is really a chronic infection one where we can truly say that we've got rid of the virus because we know of course if a person who is on an anti-HIV drug um, stop their medications, it would, it would come back. So the situation with, 
with coronavirus is we've got two things going on. One is the virus itself, and then the other is actually the body's immune response to that viral infection. And you might say, well, the body's immune response is surely only going to be a positive thing. It's going to help get rid of the viral infection. But we find in many viruses, including this novel coronavirus, that in fact the immune response sometimes goes overboard and that is certainly a contributor to some of the problems that people develop. So first of all, you know, we would evaluate, are there drugs that we can use to kill the virus? And what we've heard a lot about in the news recently is remdesivir, which is a, a drug that was developed to treat Ebola and which uh, has some activity against the novel coronavirus. We've heard leaked reports. We've heard um, little uh, snippets from the results of trials, but we don't really know how well this drug works. It certainly doesn't appear to be something that it works universally. And we've got a lot to learn about it in terms of what is the best time to, to give it. It's only available intravenously. Who are the best patients? Who it would benefit most? So still a, a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. What a lot of us, particularly in Australia and a variety of other places around the world have been looking at is repurposing medications. Now, repurposing means the drug was used and developed for other uh, indications, other conditions. And can we also use it to treat the novel coronavirus? So the one that has had the most attention is an anti-malarial drug called chloroquine. Mm -hmm. or a modification of it called hydroxychloroquine. And hydroxychloroquine uh, is used in conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or, or lupus. Now, David, and this is the, the drug that has been made famous by Donald Trump. Is that correct? <laughs> it was the first thing made famous uh, by him, obviously, <laughs> yeah. uh, the intravenous bleach, etc. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're not putting <laughs> is, that in your uh, patients. Yes, I think we might wipe that from consideration. Mm -hmm. So, yes, Donald Trump and Clive Palmer and a variety of others have, have really um, uh, advocated for its use. And because of that, there's been a lot of um, political opinion and there's been a lot of poor science as well. There's been what we call observational studies in which um, we've looked at um, the outcome of people without any selection as to who got what therapy. And, and that sort of observational data, particularly in a condition where 80% of people are going to just get better by themselves, also a condition where, um, you know, if you're looking at patients, a doctor may not give any therapy at all to someone who looks really well. They might give therapy to someone who looks really sick and it wouldn't be surprising, therefore, if the person who already was really sick would be the one who would uh, actually have the higher uh, death rate. And you could easily assume, oh, that was because they got that particular medication, but whereas, in fact, it might be their underlying illnesses. So what we always search for are what's called randomised trials. 
and that is where we we don't have any bias at the beginning. We really, by the toss of the coin or the toss of an electronic coin, determine which patient gets which therapy. And that's the most rigorous way to work out if a drug like hydroxychloroquine actually works. And the other thing is that these trials have to be big. They have to have typically well over a thousand patients. Otherwise, you may risk, if you've got too small a study, uh, not really being able to show the benefits or otherwise of a particular therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, this so, was going to be so, my question to you, David, actually, because yeah. I know that you are using um, in your trials in, in a few Queensland hospitals, um, you know, the malaria drug and this um, the HIV drug. Do you have enough yeah. sick patients in Queensland to, to get that study? Yeah. So the, the trial that we're undergoing is called ASCOT, and ASCOT stands for Australasian COVID-19 Trial. And the trial uh, randomizes people into four different arms or four different choices. One is actually a person doesn't get any antiviral drug. They get as good a standard of care as possible, but without any drugs. The second is they get the malaria drug, hydroxychloroquine. The third is that they get uh, the HIV drug called lopinavir and ritonavir. And the fourth possibility is they get the hydroxychloroquine and the HIV drug. And we've had 70 hospitals in Australia and another 11 in New Zealand agree to take part in this study. Now, there is a, um, a thing called Lasagna's Law. Lasagna was a, a very famous uh, clinical trials expert in the 60s and 70s. And lasagna came up with this law that was as soon as you design the most perfect randomized trial, suddenly the patients with the condition that you want to treat and to put into this trial disappear. And of course, they come back again when the trial is over. Mm. And unfortunately, in Australia and New Zealand, you know, while we have more than 80 hospitals ready to take part in the trial, because we've had such great uh, efforts in social distancing and control of the the in- spread of the infection, in fact, we've got no patients to in- enrol in the study. Right. And so we're, we're obeying Lasagna's law perfectly. So what we are doing is, of course, having to look internationally, whether that's in Southeast Asia, uh, whether we collaborate with colleagues in the US and Europe and potentially Latin America, Mm -hmm. because clearly, you know, we've got a a very uh, interesting objective, you know, to use these repurposed drugs. And, you know, we really think, well, we've done all this groundwork, we've got to now try and uh, advance you know, how we treat things, and we've got to get mm. people into the trial. Had you enrolled any yep. patients in the trial up to a point before kind of the curve was flattened? No, well, the, that's the, the the completely hot, well, it's a good news, bad news story. Mm. The good news is that um, when the hospitals opened for enrolment, uh, suddenly they had no patients who were eligible. And, and Amazing. Yeah, so... So we we really are committed to doing the trial, though. Mm -hmm. And one 
feature about the trial is that it's got what's called an adaptive design, which means instead of being rigid and fixed in terms of what are we going to uh, study, we are adaptable, meaning that we, if we see data that comes from overseas from a trial, um, that we are quite prepared to change the options. And it, you know, it might be that the HIV drug or the malaria drug end up not being used, but something new from the US or from Europe ends up being slotted into into the trial, depending on uh, data that's come through when we're ready to to start the study. Mm-hmm. So, so this is the the key study being done in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, at the same time, there is a huge amount of work being done on vaccine development and that's probably a a whole podcast in of itself but just in a in a nutshell you've got to really first of all develop a vaccine that has a chance of working in other words it is something that stimulates the immune system to prevent an infection then you've got to work out is it safe? You know, historically, there have been vaccines that have not had a great safety profile. Thirdly, you've got to work out, well, does this vaccine produce lifelong immunity? What is the schedule you need to give? You know, there are some vaccines where you have the vaccine and then you have a booster. You might have a booster six months later. Uh, You might have a booster five months later. You know, there's a lot of work to be discovered as to what is the right regimen. And then, you know, how do you ramp up production so that billions of people around the world uh, can get the vaccine? So there is an awful lot, you know, uh, a lot that normally takes 10 to 15 years realistically Mm -hmm. Uh, that has to be compressed into a very, very um, short period of time. And so that's our challenge. I don't think we can truly imagine that there'll be a vaccine out in 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we would like to hope that in 2021, but then, you know, by the time you ramp up production, who gets it? Is it only to be given to the elderly in nursing homes? Is it only to be given to healthcare workers, you know, when do we have the the capacity to uh, really um, say that we have a safe world where we've got protection against this novel coronavirus? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is interesting and and potentially um, your avenue of treatment of, of the virus is the most kind of short term, the best, our best shot short term because there is the scenario where we'd never find a vaccine. We've never eradicated the common cold or found a vaccine for the common cold and, you know, a litany of other things. Um, in your experience, how often do we find solutions for a sickness using existing drugs like we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it's been, that's been a, a tough battle. I mean, there's, there are some examples. One of perhaps the most famous or infamous was thalidomide. So thalidomide was a drug used in the 1960s to prevent morning sickness in women and notoriously it was found to have very very serious 
uh, birth defects in the children of the mothers who took it. Mm -hmm. But then, interestingly, um, that drug was also found to be effective in myeloma, a type of blood cancer, obviously with very strict conditions that women um, you know, who were potentially pregnant couldn't uh, get that medication. But um, that, that is sort of one example where you know, a completely different um, disease process, the drug was, was successfully used. Mm -hmm. One interesting opportunity is that uh, anti-malarials and anti-HIV drugs both are given by mouth and both do have a history of being used for long periods of time in, in certain people. And so that raises the potential that you could even give one of these medications as a preventative. But that would again require large trials. We've got to be sure that the, um, the safety of those medications uh, is sufficient that you know, if you're giving it to large numbers of people who were actually healthy, uh, trying to prevent infection, that you could um, you know give it safely with benefits, but without significant risks. Mm -hmm. So I, I think um, most likely we'll have to do another podcast, maybe every month or every couple of months, to update your listeners because it's a rapidly changing place, indeed space. And, you know, we, um, we don't have answers yet. We've got trials underway, um, but let's wait eagerly to see the results so Indeed. that we really do now know how we're going to uh, move forward. David, I'm interested. Uh, you're an infectious disease specialist. Um, all of a sudden now you've, you guys have become the, the sexiest profession, the most sought-after <laughs> profession, and you're working on something where the whole world is absolutely hanging out and waiting for you guys to kind of solve it. How is that kind of pressure? Is it strange? Yeah, it, it, it's strange, but on the other hand, it's something that has happened before. You know, we, when I was a medical student um, and then when I was a junior doctor, every one of my patients with HIV died. Mm. Um, you know, there were, first of all, there's no treatment. Then we had things like AZT, which was very partially and temporarily effective. And so, um, you know, we did have a situation there where we really, with a lot of stimulus funding, were, were able to um, move ahead and and get something. You know, I've just come from my HIV clinic and my patients are taking one pill once a day and, and leading completely um, normal lives. And that's what the infectious diseases profession has been able to do in the past and um, you know we're eager to solve this this problem of the novel coronavirus so we can we can do it again mm -hmm. so um, I, uh, I really hope that all of your listeners stay safe and um, I'd be very happy to give you an update uh, a little bit down the track. That would be great, yeah. Um, hopefully um, you won't need to. Hopefully we can um, really, really beat this thing and you won't need to have too many people in a trial, but hopefully um, your work does yield some result. David, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Bye-bye then. <laughs>